Well, brethren, let's continue to worship God together this morning by opening up our Bibles together. Please, if you have your Bible, or take one in the pew and open with me to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 5, the Lord's Sermon on the Mount. Last week, we began a new sermon series through the Beatitudes. It's going to take the next eight to ten weeks or so. And as I told you last week, we're going to take two weeks to set the context. Two weeks of introduction, uh, as it were, before we then tackle the Beatitudes one by one. And so last week, I gave part one of this two-part introduction. Today, of course, being the second part of the introduction... But I want to remind you of what we covered last week. Last week, we considered the Beatitudes as Christ's opening statement on the kingdom of God. Came teaching and preaching the kingdom. This was his first sermon. This was his opening statement on the kingdom of God. And we considered how in coming into the world, he came with the word of blessing upon his lips. That was the first word of his first sermon. And it perfectly encaptures how he came into the world not to condemn the world. The world might be saved through him. We then considered last week, tried to answer the question, what is the kingdom? What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of heaven? And as I argued, when Jesus speaks of the kingdom, he is speaking of the new creation. The kingdom is new creation. Where then do the Beatitudes fall into this? Are they law? Are they commandments? Are they exhortations? Do this. Try harder. Be like this. Well, no. Rather, they represent the inbreaking of the kingdom. The inbreaking of the new creation. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. The agent of the new creation bringing these things about. We consider that the Beatitudes in this sense are pronouncements of God's favor and blessing. They are the new creation realities brought about by the Holy Spirit. And they mark one out as a citizen of that new creation. Pointing us to the age to come. I remind you of all this because it's important background to what we're going to consider today. Now, secondly, I want us to focus in on the word blessed. Blessed. I'm not going to do a full exposition today in any sense. We'll get to that more next week when we dive into the text. Today, I want to focus in on the word blessed, and I want us to consider the Beatitudes as the way of happiness. The way of happiness. So with this then, brethren, let's stop and let's first listen to our Lord speaking in his infallible, inerrant word. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 12. Receive this as God's word. Seeing the crowds, Jesus went up on the mountain. And when he sat down, his disciples came to him. And he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. 
Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Would you bow with me again briefly in prayer? Our Father, our, our Lord, our Savior, our Creator, our God, we pray this morning, we stop right now and we ask, would you teach us the way of blessedness? Oh Lord, we pray that your word would pierce to the division of soul and spirit, joints and marrow. Lord, down to the depths of our heart. We pray, Father, for the good of your soul, our souls, you would feed us with the words of life, with the bread of life. Christ himself. We pray, Lord, that we would find life and blessedness today in you and in your word and in your promises and in that alone. Oh, Lord, we wait. We eagerly wait and we listen. And we pray through the name of our spotless and sinless Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, if we ever want to hope to understand Jesus' words here, it's kind of obvious that we kind of need to know what he means by the word blessed, don't we? If, if I were to ask you just right now off the top of your head, um, what does the word blessed actually mean? How would you respond? I think in our day, and especially here in the Bible Belt, uh, we can really throw around this word blessed or blessed really pretty casually. You know, I've seen um, ultra luxury cars with custom license plates that say blessed, right? We've seen bumper stickers and hats and t-shirts and coffee mugs and, you know, the sign over the fireplace or or the dinner table in the home that says blessed. We go on social media and we see the hashtag blessed. We hear an actor or an actress, you know, when they receive a reward uh, or an athlete uh, in a post-game interview, just talk about how blessed they are. Even we ourselves, you know, when somebody compliments you or maybe you're recounting some particular um, joy or fortune that you have in life. Uh, Don't we tend to say, I'm just so blessed to have this job. I'm just so blessed to have this spouse. I'm just so blessed to have this family. I mean, how many times has someone said to you also, like, I hope you have a blessed day. What does that mean? What does it mean when we use that term blessed and and blessed? and, And maybe more specifically... Is what we mean when we use that word the same as what Jesus means when he uses it here nine times in 12 verses? Well, part of the problem with answering this question is that really, truth be known, there's no perfect English word that uh, communicates everything embedded in this Greek term. It's just not a one-to-one. 
Right? You have a Greek word for dog and you have an English word for dog. That's pretty easy. But the Greek word here, it carries a lot more than what is um, um, captured or that is embedded in our Greek, which, uh, excuse me, our English, which is really a Latin word for blessed. Of course, this means that no small amount of ink has been spilt by theologians trying to make sense of this word. But that's kind of what I want to do for you here today. As I argued last week, in one sense, blessed means favored. And here it means divine favor. This is the king of the kingdom. The God-man Jesus Christ descending to his rightful um, um, creation as Lord over all, and he's dispensing favor upon the citizens of his kingdom. This is the king of the kingdom assuring his subjects that he approves of them. However, at the same time, while this is true, there's actually more than just divine favor in view here. For the word also clearly carries a connotation of happiness. In fact, some translations are even so bold as to translate it that way. Happy are the poor in spirit. That is, in many respects, we can say that the blessed are favored by God, but they also enjoy happiness as a result of being in that position of favor. And maybe this gets at kind of our, our common usage of the word I mentioned a moment ago, right? Uh, I am blessed, or I'm having a blessed day. It carries this do- double connotation of I've received favor. But I'm also experiencing joy or I'm experiencing happiness. But of course, this also isn't without its problems. I mean, how do we understand happiness in our day? Don't we tend to interpret or understand happiness in very subjective terms, very personal terms? Happiness is how I feel. Happiness is when life works out the way that I want it to work out. Happiness is when things go well and I really have nothing to complain about. Happiness is when I have succeeded in life, according to my definition. Happiness is when I flourish in life. Flourishing as defined by me. Flourishing as defined by the culture around me. And brethren, I hope you don't need me to tell you that this is not the same sense in which Christ speaks here. Just think of how um, it sounds for Jesus to say, happy are those who mourn. Wait a second, aren't those like antonyms? Isn't mourning the opposite of how we understand happiness? Happy are those who are reviled and persecuting. Is that really the definition of the, of the flourishing, favored life? So brethren, this is where the rubber meets the road when we come to these beatitudes. For our Lord, as our King, is revealing to us the things that we often consider to be a prison, right? Mourning, poor in spirit, persecuted, reviled. He is saying this is really a palace, an eternal palace, a place, a palace in God's kingdom, a position of favor. And here, in this sense, Jesus redefines for us what it means to be happy. He tells us what happiness is. He tells us what favor is. And he reorientates our thinking and our inclinations regarding what the good life of divine favor really is. So I think the question before us this morning is, I could just put it to you this way. Do you long for a life of divine favor? 
Do you long for a life of genuine, redemptive, spiritual, new creation happiness? Will you listen to your God and Creator and Savior tell you what pleases Him? Tell you what, is, what, what are the signs of divine favor? Tell you where true, deep, lasting happiness can be found? Tell you what is preparing you for the age to come? That's what the Beatitudes teach us in many respects. No, it's not the happiness of this world. It's not the happiness that is natural to our our sinful inclinations. But it's the kind of favor and happiness and flourishing according to our Lord's definition. It is what God values. And thus today, I want us to see with new eyes and a new perspective. The perspective of our Lord. What favor and happiness and flourishing and blessing, blessedness truly are. Uh, our outline today is pretty simple. Three points, two positive, uh, excuse me, two negative and a positive. Uh, I want to break down what blessedness is, but we need to begin by saying two things about what it is not. So first, today, I want us to consider, I want us to think about how true happiness is at enmity with the values and opinions of the world. We need to start there and recognize that. True happiness is at enmity with the values and opinions of the world. I mentioned this last week, but Jesus here ascending the mountain invokes Moses ascending Mount Sinai to receive the law. Right here, red lights and alarm bells are going off saying this is a theophany. This is a divine revelation. This is God um, giving us his word. We should see here as well that this is an advancement in redemptive history because God himself in Christ appears on the mountain, not through a mediator Moses. We should see as well, as I mentioned last week, Mount Sinai, the law, people were told to stay away or you die. But here they're invited to come near, to draw near to God in Christ. Here we are to see the announcement not of another Moses, but the fulfillment of the greater Moses. That God promised long ago. And we are to see Christ bringing here not another law, but the pronouncement of blessing to allure us to God with the benevolence and goodness of God that is found and descended to us in Christ. Of course, this is exactly the opposite of what Israel expected from her coming Messiah. Here is a humble, lowly man entering Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, obviously later in the Gospels. This is a, a lot different than the warrior on a white horse ready to come slay the enemies, those evil, pe- evil wicked, pagan Romans. The Sermon on the Mount as well is exactly the opposite of what Israel thought was true righteousness. They thought they could obtain righteousness by the law. And Jesus here proclaims an inward righteousness, a spiritual righteousness, a heart righteousness received by faith. Beatitudes also were the, exactly the opposite of what Israel thought was truly valuable and blessed in life. Which, of course, they accounted as blessing and prosperity and goodness in this life rather than the life to come. 
Well, just as Jesus came bringing the opposite, I mean, the same is true in our day as well. So often we're, aren't we so caught up with our enemies or maybe specifically the enemies of God and what we think that they deserve and how we wish that God would come and put them in their place that we miss how Jesus is gentle and lowly and how he calls us to go into the world and love our neighbors and adorn the gospel with good works. So often too, we find ourselves wanting to um, ascend the mountain, the mountain of good works. Live life on our own terms. Look down on everybody else who doesn't meet our standards. So often we want to define what true happiness and fulfillment and flourishing is. Apart from, right, the word of God, the truth of God, Psalm 1. Apart from meditating on his law day and night, according to our standards and our definitions. This is how Jesus' teaching on true happiness here was just as countercultural then as it is now. So I want to think for a moment about how the happiness that the world defines is prevalent in our day. I mean, can't we all say that we want to be happy, that we want to flourish, we want to enjoy life? How does the world understand this? Well, you don't have to look far. I took my children to see the Mario Brothers movie last week. Great movie. But... You know, the worst part of the movie was the previews beforehand. Previews of movies that come out, they show us what this world values and what this world considers as the blessed life. You can see the same thing if you just scan the popular TV shows right now. Or you monitor the popular social media influencers. Or the YouTube channels with the most views. Watch, watch the news. doesn't even matter what channel, whatever, whether it's a liberal or a conservative news channel. Pay attention to what's on the news. Pay attention to what's going on in Washington. And you can see all that you need to know about how our world and what our world thinks happiness and blessedness really is. What are the Beatitudes of this world? Blessed are they who are rich. And enjoy the finer things in life. Blessed are they who hunger and thirst after wealth and popularity and pleasure. Blessed are they who have great jobs and good looks and trendy, spacious homes and comfortable retirement nest egg. Blessed are those who are attractive. They get all the girls, they attract all the men. Blessed are they who are popular and well-liked. have lots of friends. Blessed are they who are safe. They're under no threat of disease. They're no threat of job loss. They've got the proper education and credentials. Blessed are they who are safe from foreign enemies. Blessed are they who are safe from global warming. Blessed are they whose preferred... Political party is in power. Blessed are they who are entertained, constantly amused, never bored. They live exciting lives and they document it for you on social media. They travel the world. They do fun things. They eat at amazing restaurants. They never have a dull moment. Blessed are they who stand up for their rights. Don't let anybody tell them what to do. 
Blessed are they who live life on their own terms, who fight for what they rightly deserve. Blessed are they who are free to love whomever they wish to love, even if it twists God's creational design and invites his judgment and wrath. Blessed are they who live according to their preferred identity, even if it conflicts with reason and logic, facts and biology. Blessed are they who maintain control over their body, even if that means killing another in order to be happy. These are the world's beatitudes. I could go on. You know them. I want you to see this because think of how Jesus turns the values of the world upside down entirely. How sad it it is, isn't it? How tragic that our world longs for happiness. They do. They long for happiness. And yet, yet in our sin, we always seek happiness in things that are bound to bring only misery. We think this will bring happiness and it brings destruction. That's the deceitfulness of sin, isn't it? That's the lie that our Lord is exposing right here. As I said earlier, he comes to free us from this prison that we think is a palace because we're deceived. Nevertheless, I want to ask you again, do you see how friendship with the world is enmity with God? Because if you hear the world, uh, excuse me, if you hear the world's beatitudes, and that becomes your desire and your passion, then these right here, they're just going to bounce right off your heart. It's going to mean nothing to you. You can't combine the world's idea of happiness with what our Lord says here. They can't be reconciled. They cannot in any way go together. They are incompatible. So who, you, who will you listen to? Who defines happiness for you? Who is it that tells you what fulfillment in life and blessedness is? Is it going to be everybody else? Are you going to listen to the siren song of this world as if they truly know you, as if they truly care for you, as if they can really lead you into the good life? Are you going to listen to your creator, your God, the one who made you, the one who knows you, the one who loves you, the one who's come to you in the person of Christ, the one who has given himself for you and your salvation, the one who himself is the way, the truth, the life? That's part of what the Beatitudes confront us with and confront you with here today, this morning as well. But this isn't all. Closely related to this is our second point. Before we really get to define what this is, we still need to say another thing about what it is not. True happiness is contrary to the values and opinions of this world. But secondly, true happiness also runs contrary to our own natural thinking and inclinations. Contrary to the world, contrary to what's in here. Our natural thinking and inclinations. Of course, I hope you know that the opinions and values of the world are not just all those evil people out there. 
Oh my goodness, I can't believe they'd want to be rich and powerful. I can't believe they'd want to live life on their own terms. We all have the seeds of those in our hearts and they're all expressed in different ways. The world's values are simply a reflection of what's in your heart and what's in my heart by nature. Because we are born and guilty in Adam. So you may not have a burning desire for riches or popularity or sinful pleasure. But that doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't also challenge your perceptions of the good life. Think of it this way. You know, by nature, we don't account happiness as being free from trouble. Do we? Maybe I should rephrase that. Sorry. We do account happiness as being free from trouble, don't we? Free from trouble. Free from pain. Free from suffering. Free from poverty. Free from other people hurting us. Other people reviling us. Other people slandering us. Other people trampling on our rights. Not giving us what we deserve. Being selfish. Being hateful toward us. Don't we count also happiness as being in a healthy mental state? It's a buzzword nowadays. Mental health. Don't we count happiness as being in a, in a positive, um, healthy, emotional state as well? We have good relationships with other people. We don't, uh, uh, bef- uh, you know, no tragedy befalls us or disease or calamity, uh, calamity in life. Don't we tend to see that sorrow and mourning and lowliness and giving up our rights to be peacemakers and persecution and slander, don't we tend to see those things as contrary to the happy and blessed and uh, uh, prosperity favored and flourishing life? Again, this goes back to, you know, how even us Christians use the word blessed in our day. I got a loving family. I got a wonderful spouse. I got a comfortable home. I got food on the table. I got healthy children. Look at them. They're playing in the backyard. Can life get any better? I am so blessed. Well, brethren, hear me. Look, you know, don't hear me as discounting the fact that those things are blessings. You know, those things are blessings indeed. Those are blessings from God that do bring a measure of happiness. But I want you to see here, those are blessings that God gives all his creatures. The righteous and the wicked alike. Those are earthly blessings that flow out of the terms of the Noahic covenant. The non-redemptive covenant of common grace. Having that kind of life, a good spouse, a nice family, a comfortable job, a nice home, things that are go well, I'm not racked with disease, I'm healthy, I've got good relationships. Those are not blessings that Christ died to secure for you. Those are not, those are not blessings of the new creation. Those are not blessings that are produced in you by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Those are not blessings that flow out of the terms and the promises of the new covenant in Christ's blood. Christians have no special claim on the terms of the covenant of common grace. The joys and the tragedies of life befall the righteous and the wicked alike. 
Being righteous does not mean you're not going to get cancer and die at an early age. Or you're not going to lose a children, a child, or a job, or a friendship. You don't have to be a Christian to enjoy a comfortable life and a, and a beautiful and loving family and spouse and a fulfilling, flourishing life. So here then, with these Beatitudes, these blessings that Jesus gives here, these are redemptive blessings. They are the new creation blessings that flow out of the new covenant. They are the blessings that Christ died to secure for you in his life and death and resurrection and ascension. And so that's why none of these blessings here can be described as what we might call natural. They're not natural. They're not earthly. They're not produced by you. You know, a person might have a natural disposition toward being meek in his personality. A person might have uh, the gift of being a peacemaker. Just really, you know, that kind of person. A person might be naturally, you know, more melancholy, poor in spirit, maybe. But we, but we need to draw a sharp distinction between the spiritual qualities here produced by and brought about by the Holy Spirit and the natural qualities of nature. See, this is how Jesus, again, he's overturning, he's deconstructing. He is deconstructing our own ideas of what it means to be happy Flourishing, blessed. He comes to bewilder us about what is truly the good life. It's only then when we are stripped down. Right? Our fig leaves have been exposed. Our filthy rags are shown to be in tatters. It's only then when our self-will and our self-love and our self-wisdom and our self-perception about what we need, about what we want, about what the good life is, only then, when we are in that position, are our hearts prepared then to receive the seeds of new life, true blessedness and fulfillment and flourishing according to our God's definition. He speaks here so that we do not think that being gentle and lowly in spirit or mourning and persecuted or giving up our rights to make peace. He speaks this way so that we must not think that these things are contrary to the happy life, the good life, the spiritual flourishing life. And that, brethren, sets the stage then for our third and final point. We've considered what happiness is not, or blessedness, what it is not. It is not according to the world. It's not according to our natural sensibilities. What is it then? Third and finally, true happiness is when the Spirit aligns us to the age to come. True happiness is when we are aligned by the Holy Spirit in heart with the age to come. I mentioned a moment ago that, you know, we can look to the media, social media, entertainment, and find what the world considers to be happiness. You don't really have to look that far, though. You don't even have to look at culture, really. All you got to do is spend five minutes talking to an unbeliever. Just sit down with an unbeliever 
and ask them, what is happiness? Ask them, what do you want out of life? What do you admire? What are you seeking? Of course, the answers will differ from person to person. But every single answer will eventually and ultimately come down to this. Everything they say will in some way center on this life and what they can get out of it. This is the essential difference between a Christian and non-Christian. The essential difference between the happiness of the world and the happiness that Christ describes here. The essential difference, without exception, is that the unbeliever lives for this world and what they can get out of it, while in contrast, the Christian decidedly does not. The Christian following Christ has renounced this world. The Christian following Christ has died to self to take up their cross to suffer with and for him. The Christian following Christ loses their life in this age in order to gain life in the age to come. That's what it means to be a Christian. That's what it means to be a Christian. You do not live for this world. Your entire outlook, your entire ambition, the entire disposition of your heart is directed to the hope of the age to come. And this changes everything. It changes everything. You don't live the same way. You don't make the same decisions. You don't follow the same paths. You don't think the same way. The age to come is the passion of our hearts. And so the inclination and disposition regarding everything we do is directed toward that end. We do everything to attain to the resurrection of the dead. And that's what Jesus is teaching here. That's what Jesus is teaching right here. If we could break it down in two ways, there's a close relationship between these two things. Jesus is teaching us what true spiritual flourishing is in this life. But he's showing us how it's connected to and it's focused on, it's related to flourishing in the life to come. Happiness now is found when you pursue happiness there. Flourishing now is found when you pursue flourishing there. I mean, as a Christian, can't, you, can't we all testify from experience that there's, there is a close relationship between holiness and happiness? Aren't you most at peace? Most joy? Most sense of fulfillment and purpose in life? When you're walking with the Lord closely and there is a, there's a holy zeal and a, and, and a love in your heart for the things of God. And even though life may fall apart around you, you know where your security, your surety is. It's because there is a connection between who we are in this life and who we will be in the age to come. And that's what Christ teaches here. If we were to go through these one by one, we could ask, why are these people blessed? Why are they happy? Think of it that way. 
The poor in spirit are happy because despite appearances on the outside, they know they are citizens of the age to come. And they enjoy the special privileges of the age to come right now. And the mournful are happy. Why? Because they know we're not alone in our sorrows. Our God is our comforter. He is our strength. He is our help in times of trouble. Our God is the lifter of our head. And because he is for us, and because he is with us, we know for sure if he's blessed me now like this, I know for sure he will wipe away every tear and remove every sorrow at the last day. The meek, why are they happy? Because there is a blessing and a peace found in modeling the humility of our Lord. Depending, uh, living and depending upon his grace and his strength and not ourselves. Because we know in the end that the meek will inherit the new heavens and the new earth. Don't you know that the saints will judge the world? Those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Those who long for justice because they've been mistreated in this life is the best way to understand this. Why are they happy? Because we know that when we are mistreated, when we experience injustice, you know what that does? It sets fire to our hearts. An anticipation for the, for the age to come. We, long, we start longing for the last day. Oh Lord, will you avenge me? Well, you said things right. I've been so slandered. I've been so abused. I've been so trampled on. Will you come and vindicate my cause? And brethren, when we long for that, we long for the age to come. And that hope purifies us. It sanctifies us. Anything that causes us to long for the age to come is good for our souls. The merciful, they are happy because it's a sign that grace has been worked into our hearts. That we are imaging and modeling God who is the God of all mercy. And it illustrates for us and assures us in our faith that we will receive mercy one day as well. The pure in heart, they are happy because who we are now is related to who we will be forever in eternity. And we see that God has purified our hearts by the blood of Christ. And if we're pure, we will see him. The peacemakers are happy because there's a great privilege in walking in the steps of our Lord, modeling our Lord, giving up our rights for the sake of peace and reconciliation. And we image our Savior and we will be accounted as sons at the last day. And those who are persecuted and reviled are happy because we know we're in great company. Suffering is always easier when we suffer together, right? The worst part of suffering is often because we're all alone. When we're persecuted, we know I am in a great company of prophets and even the Lord himself who is persecuted. And I know I will receive a great reward at the last day. You see, brethren, the Beatitudes strike at the essential difference and the characteristics of, of between a Christian and a non-Christian The non-Christian lives for this world. The Christian, our entire outlook is directed towards the age to come. And this is how the Beatitudes teach us what is true spiritual happiness, fulfillment, and favor. These are virtues that are in some sense true of every Christian. 
These are virtues that are proof of being in a proper covenantal relationship with God. These are virtues that are the evidence that you have participation in the age to come. That the new work of new creation and the agent of new creation, the Holy Spirit, has been poured out upon your heart. These are virtues that give you assurance that your reward is sure and certain at the last day so that you might not look at present difficult circumstances and judge otherwise. These are virtues that represent what it means to have the peace that surpasses all understanding and that true contentment and grace, the smile of God's favor and providence, even if life is very difficult. These are the virtues that Confirm to you that God smiles down upon you, that his presence and favor is with you, that he is giving you and preparing in you something that is far greater than any earthly blessing, any temporary blessedness, any earthly blessing, riches, favor or comfort better than it all. But this is what is so counterintuitive to the Christian life. Counterintuitive about the Christian life, I should say. Because these virtues, this happiness, this flourishing, it doesn't and isn't found in circumstances, but it is found in union with Christ by faith. When we are united with Christ by faith, That's what it means to be blessed. That is where true blessedness is found. And when in union with Christ through faith, the Holy Spirit aligns our thinking and our behavior and our disposition towards the age to come. We can know and live in the joy of the certainty that all the promises of God are yes and amen in him. This is what it means that the Holy Spirit Aligning us with the age to come is where true happiness is found. Well, brethren, as we draw this to a conclusion this morning, I just want to press it upon you one last time as we close. Have you seen how the Lord challenges our dreams and desires? Have you seen that the gospel is a call to die? That it means the end of you? That he's both calling you to be a different type of person in distinction from the world, but also in distinction from what you want out of life. You see that Christ doesn't want us to spend our time daydreaming and wishing that we were rich and that we were beautiful and talented and popular and that things would go well with us. But rather that he lays this before us So that we might desire to be poor in spirit and mournful and meek and peacemakers and even that we would wish to suffer for his sake. Do you see that the Beatitudes present to us the kind of life, the kind of person that we should envy? That's what I want to be right here. That's the call of the Beatitudes. Have you seen Jesus this morning give you a a vision, not of what you need to do, not what what, what you should be to do or strive to do in and of yourselves, but he gives you this glorious vision of what he intends your life to be. So 
So that you can say with the psalmist, Lord, you've put more joy in my heart than even when grain and wine abound. Of course, do you see ultimately how Jesus here, or I should say the Beatitudes most specifically, have you seen how they paint in vivid, beautiful colors a portrait of Christ himself? All of these things, they describe who Jesus is. All of these blessings then can only be found in him, can only be found in a person. You can't do these things on your own. You can't conjure this up on your own. You can't pursue this on alone. You can only receive these things by faith because you receive Christ himself alone by faith. And this then is the kind of blessed and happy and fulfillment and reward that is found only in him and only in union with Christ. You may wonder, well, what is union with Christ? Well, do you know what a marriage is? Marriage is when two people love each other and they live together. And there is an intimacy, there is a love, there is a fellowship, there is a communion, there is a life together. Right? A bond. Well, that's a good picture of what it means to be in union with Christ. You experience and you pursue fellowship with Him. You listen and you read His Word. You go to where He is present in the church, His body. You look and you find Him in the sacrament and see, there is my Savior. You pray to Him. You cry out to Him. You commune with Him. And that is how you begin to look like this right here. You know, interesting, like... Studies show that married couples who've been married for many, many decades, 40, 50 years, that they actually begin to look like each other physically. They begin to resemble each other. And scientists, as they try to trace this out, they found that, that you spend so long, so many years of your life looking into the face of someone else, the same person, that you begin to mimic their facial expressions and manner of speaking. And so the muscles in your face tend to form and define in very similar manners. Brother, that's a great illustration of what we see here in the Beatitudes. You begin to resemble your Savior who is displayed here when you look into his face day by day by day. You find him in the word. You find him in the, the bread and the wine. You find him in the church. And keeping your eyes fixed upon him, you were were morphed and made into his image. The glorious image of the new creation. The firstborn of new creation. Well, may God give us the grace to look and see the face of our Savior this morning. And receive the blessed and flourishing life as he has defined for us in his word. Amen. Let's pray.